It is an amazing truth that we mortal, human, sinful beings could actually be given a task to be witnesses to a holy God. That is the theme of my message this morning. You will be my witnesses. It comes from the book of Acts. And before you turn there, I want to start with an introduction, with an illustration that will sort of paint the picture for why this passage matters and why the entire book of Acts matters. A few years ago, we began as a church to um, update our membership roles. Well, we only have one role. Um, but we have many names on that role. And we found that some of the people uh, had moved out. Uh, others just stopped coming and moved along in their life journey. Um, but of those that have moved out, we have really tried to um, seek them out and ask them if they have joined another church in their new area where they moved. And uh, by God's grace, most of the people that are now moved um, have, have really worked it out to find churches where they are joining or they have joined. But one of those uh, people that we have contacted wrote back to us, and um, it was after a few months of going back and forth, we kept oppressing the importance of them joining to a community of believers, and until they do so, I'm still their pastor. Now, they haven't seen me because I had just moved here, and and they didn't know. I didn't know their faces. They didn't know me. And I could see by their emails, they started getting irritated why this unknown guy would call them and would email them and, and present himself as their pastor, his pastor. And um, so in one of those emails, finally, when the lever of frustration got a little high, he said, look, you don't have to join a church to go to heaven. And at that moment, we paused for a second and talked a little more. And in some way, his answer, in a very, very, very narrow sense, is true. But in a larger sense, is totally off. Because in some narrow sense, we believe with him that indeed the entrance into the kingdom of God is on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. And no joining of the church would actually give you entrance into that kingdom. We get that. But that's a very, very narrow way of understanding that definition. In a broad sense, in this person's mind, he didn't think that a commitment to the fellowship of, of Christians was essential to the gospel. And Acts proves such a view to be totally out of line. Wherever the gospel produces the fruit of repentance and faith, you start seeing churches popping up because that's what the gospel produces in the hearts of those who respond to this gospel. It produces a life of people who are bound together by the, by the sacrifice of Christ. The Christian message of the gospel is inseparable from the Christian church. The gospel should be distinguished from the church. We get that. The gospel should be distinguished from the church. The gospel is not the church. The gospel is a good news that transforms the lives of people. It's a good news about Christ that transforms the lives of people. And when that news is embraced, 
it creates a community, and that community is called the church. So while the gospel is distinguishable from the church, the gospel is never separable from the church. Do you see how that works? The gospel is distinguishable from the church, but is not separable from the church. So that a church that loses the gospel is no longer a church. And a gospel that no longer produces churches is no longer the true gospel. It's a distorted gospel. But the question for us to explore this morning is this. What is the message of the church? What are we called to do? Why are we left here on earth? Why did God come up with the idea of the church? If you are here this morning, and perhaps someone may have invited you here this morning, why is there a place to which someone invited you to come? Why are we gathering? Now, some of you may have had some bad experiences with church. When church often seems such a difficult endeavor, when it often seems to be weak or irrelevant or ineffective, why church? Why did God come up with the idea of the church? Well, these questions are very important for us as we begin our study in the book of Acts. We really began this series last week as we gave a, a broad overview of the book of Acts in connection to the gospel of Luke. Today, we are immersing ourselves in the first verses of this book, and I encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And I've asked you to read, um, during the week, we ask you to, encourage you to read um, a passage that I'll be preaching from. I ask you to read from the entire chapter. I will only be preaching from the first 14 verses, and I will keep the last part of the chapter for next time. But encourage you to open your Bibles to um, Acts chapter 1. If you're using a red Bible, providing the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 944. And my reading this morning will come from the ESV uh, translation. Here's the word of the Lord for us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing unto heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, 
who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us? Most gracious God, we thank you that you have given us your revelation, that you have inspired the prophets and the apostles to pass on to us the events that have taken place 2,000 years ago. And now we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you enlighten our minds, speak to our hearts, make us attentive to your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 1. Who is Theophilus? Theophilus. His name means loved by God. We don't know much about him. It seems, however, that he was not foreign to the story of Jesus. Actually, in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, um, Luke says that why he began writing the account of Jesus' life. I just want to read to you a few verses from the way the Gospel begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word um, they have delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? He says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Um, Theophilus had certain knowledge already of the story of Jesus. Others have written about this account already, but Luke writes to him again so that he, this man Theophilus, of whom we don't know very much, that he may grow in certainty about these events which he knew about already. Friends, the idea of certainty is emphasized again in the first few verses of Acts, the verses we've read. Read with me again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Proofs are brought to instill certainty. Now here lies the first challenge of the church. The message we are called to proclaim is not just a philosophy of life. The message we are called to proclaim is not just a religious system. The message we are called to proclaim is not simply a self-improvement ideology. The church has been called to proclaim a news that has taken place in history, a message that has been backed up by many proofs to those who were eyewitnesses so that 
The truth we're called to proclaim is also a fact of history. Truth is not just a matter of coherence or being logical. Truth is a matter of correspondence to reality. This is a truth we're called to proclaim. This means that as Christians, we are not called to sell a philosophy of life and using techniques of marketing to increase results. We have been called to proclaim an event that has happened. And our greatest challenge is to speak as faithfully about what has happened, as faithfully as we can. But so often, dear friends, we find ourselves fearful of how to sell this product called Christianity to those who don't have it. What if we gave up our salesmanship techniques and simply put on a historian's hat and talk about what has happened? I want to talk to you about an event. Let me tell you what happened and talk about Jesus. The one who was born of a virgin because he was fully God and fully man. The one who died on a cross even though he had no guilt of his own because he died in our place for our guilt. And three days later, he rose from the dead and he departed to his father. He departed from this earth not by dying, but by ascending to his father. And he said he will come again to establish his kingdom And because of these facts of history are true, we extend the command of God to all people to repent and turn away from their own ways and turn to Christ so that those who do respond to Christ with repentance and faith, they begin a new life with God. They are given a new nature. They are made into a new creation with God those who do not respond to Christ, those who die without Christ on this earth, for them their only destiny is the eternal torment, the eternal wrath of God whom he has prepared for his angels and for Satan. But those who turn around, those who accept the truth of these claims and repent of their sins and turn to Christ, they are given the hope of life. This is the truth of the events of what Christ has done for us. Friends, this is the truth of the gospel. If you're here this morning, perhaps you, you might call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you only have a badge of that Christian name, but your nature has not been changed. Nothing has happened inside of you. I'd love to talk to you. This gospel is for you today. Receive it. Respond to it. Embrace it. Because to die without Christ is to remain under the eternal wrath of God. But to embrace Christ in this life is to embrace and receive the life God prepared for us. So if if you'd like to know more about this news, come and talk to me at the end of the service. But the message of the kingdom of God is based on the certainty of what God has done in Christ to save us. Friends, this is a gospel that results in the formation of the church. This is the truth This is the proclamation we are called to speak. This is the proclamation we're called to make clear to every human being we encounter. But when that word is spoken clearly, 
When that word is heard, when that word is embraced, it forms churches. That's why we're here this morning. People who gather from all walks of life, who have embraced and have believed this truth about Christ, and now they have been made into a new creation. Friends, let's go back to the way all this started. When Christ empowered his disciples to be witnesses, to proclaim this news, to proclaim these facts of history, to proclaim these events, what did Jesus tell them? That's where we go back to Acts chapter 1, how Jesus empowered and prepared his disciples to be proclaimers of this gospel, of this event that eventually caused and created the church. There are two things I'd like to point out to you uh, as we look at the first verses of the book of Acts. And the first one is a command to wait. A command to wait. In verse 4, Jesus gives a surprising command. Do not depart from Jerusalem. Not yet. Wait for the promise of the Father. Now, a book that will be so much about missions and going starts off with a command to wait. How ironic. How counterintuitive. And it is counterintuitive unless we remember what the wait was for. Wait for the Holy Spirit. You can't do this mission. You can't do this task without the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, when he began his mission on earth, at his baptism, what descended upon him? The Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus had his Holy Spirit from his conception, but there is a sense of even a greater empowerment in his own ministry before he began so that the Holy Spirit came upon him. Now the disciples are given the same mission to proclaim the news of the kingdom, and they need to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives two reasons why the disciples should wait. First, because the Holy Spirit is a promise of the Father. Look at how Jesus describes the Spirit, the, the promise of the Father. There are many things God had promised and had fulfilled. The Father promised to send a Savior, and He did. He sent His own Son to save us. But the Father also promised to send His Spirit. And at the time Jesus speaks here to these disciples, this was still a promise. So Jesus tells them, don't leave without the promise of the Father. What a beautiful way to describe the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. Don't go without Him. Second reason why the command to wait, Jesus says John's baptism was, was only with water. And it was a baptism of repentance to prepare God's people to see their inadequacy and their failures before God and to be ready to receive the salvation prepared by God in Christ. That's why John the Baptist was sent to proclaim a message of repentance. And his baptism of water was a baptism of repentance. And John himself gave this promise. He said that he baptizes only with water. And we know that water cannot cleanse. John knew that. That's why he spoke about another baptism, 
which Jesus was going to carry out. When Jesus comes, he will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it is the Spirit that produces the cleansing by applying to our hearts the benefits of Christ. It is the Spirit that unites believers to Christ so that spiritually we are engrafted into Christ by the Spirit. When we're baptized into the Spirit, that's what the Spirit does to us. That's why here in Acts, Jesus speaks not just about receiving the Spirit, but about being baptized with the Spirit. It is a Spirit that does that which the water points to. The reason why Jesus could not baptize with the Spirit until now is because he had not yet purchased redemption. The blood which cleanses us of sin was not yet shed. But now that it is shed, now Jesus promises a spirit so that the spirit takes the blood of Christ and applies it to us. And also the spirit was not able to be given because Jesus was going to baptize us with the spirit, not simply as on earth, but as the ascended Christ. So that, dear friends, the baptism with the Spirit will happen by Jesus after he returns to the Father. This means that the story of Jesus is not finished with his death, resurrection, and ascension. We, we so easily think, well, Jesus was born, he died, he resurrected, he went to the Father, he finished his work on earth. No, he did not. <laughs> the baptism with the Spirit that John prophesied about, Jesus will carry out from from the right hand of the Father. So the, the work of Jesus is going on in the book of Acts through the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's why the disciples should wait because Jesus will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. So the disciples do wait. But their waiting was an idol. What was their waiting about? How did it happen? Friends, it's not the kind of waiting that you and I do when, um, when we do nothing. You know what I'm talking about? Taking your iPad and playing solitaire. What are you doing? Just doing nothing. You're in a plane. You can't do much. So you're just going to play solitaire. You're, you're just waiting to get your destination. That's not the kind of waiting the disciples were doing. You know, see, what were they doing in their waiting? Verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It was a waiting devoted to prayer. It was a waiting in which they were one in prayer. What an active waiting. This is the kind of waiting that characterizes the book of Acts. Waiting in prayer. Oh, friend, when we realize what's going on here, Jesus just promised them that he's going to give them the Spirit. And now they're going to wait and they're praying. Did the thought ever cross your mind, why pray if God promised he will do it already? Wasn't that promise enough? Just go in Jerusalem, wait for him to deliver his promise. Why so much devotion to prayer? Don't you believe God's promises? Do questions like this hit your mind? And, and Jesus, by the way, Jesus 
put a timestamp on this promise. He says, not many days from now. This is going to happen soon. Why devote yourself to prayer when God already promised it and said, I'm going to do it very soon? Well, friends, such questions betray the assumption that prayer is needed only when we need a change of plan. Or that prayer is needed only to get promises out of God. So that when God gives us a promise, we can stop praying and just wait for it to happen. Right? But such a view of prayer is very, very reductionistic. God's plans or promises don't make prayer superfluous. But quite the contrary. God's plans and promises give us confidence in prayer. And Jesus taught us and taught his disciples not to give up praying until we receive from God an answer. Jesus did that in Luke 18. Keep praying until you receive what you ask for. This implies that it is, it is that kind of prayer that keeps praying until the moment of reception. Keep praying. That's a mark of true faith. I love what David Peterson said. It is striking that at almost every important turning point in the narrative of God's redemptive action in Acts, we find a mention of prayer. Every time where there's a significant turn of events in Acts, there's mention of prayer. When we think of prayer, I want to, because this is the kind of waiting the disciples were doing. I want to read to you a quote from um, Ian Murray. Ian Murray wrote a book uh, some time ago about um, the way of revivals in the past two centuries, and he wrote a book called Revival and Revivalism. And he compared the work of true revival and, and the work of revivalism, and they're not the same. But here's what, what Ian Murray, Murray said about prayer. On the subject of means, something needs to be said more particularly on prayer. As with the truth that is preached, prayer has no inherent power in itself. On the contrary, true prayer is bound up with a persuasion of our inability and our complete dependence on God. Prayer, considered as a human activity, whether offered by a few or many, can guarantee no results. But prayer that throws believers into the heartfelt need on God with true concern for the salvation of sinners will not go unanswered. Prayer of this kind precedes blessing not because of any necessary cause and effect, but because such prayer secures an acknowledgement of the true author of the blessing. And where such a prayer such a spirit of prayer exists, it is a sign that God is already intervening to advance his cause. Do you see that? Prayer is not just, oh, let me try to make God do some things that he wasn't planning to do. No. Prayer is an acknowledgement that everything comes from God. Prayer is a, an act of dependence on God, acknowledging that if anything good will happen on this earth, it is because of God. That's why the disciples, even though they got the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, their time of waiting is characterized by prayer. But why wait in Jerusalem? The Spirit could have come anywhere. 
right? Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because in the Old Testament, God promised to establish his kingdom through the line of David. And the promise of the Holy Spirit was connected with the theme of God bringing about his kingdom. And if his kingdom was going to come through also through the coming of the Spirit, where will that kingdom start reigning or manifesting itself? In the city of David, in Jerusalem. David Peterson says, Jerusalem was especially associated with the promise of God to rule over his people and bless them through David's line. And that's why in the prophets, there are two prophecies in Isaiah and in Micah. And, and these prophecies are almost verbatim. I'm going to read them to you. They're word for word, similar in Micah and in Isaiah. Micah 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This prophecy is so important that it's repeated again in Isaiah, word for word. And the word of the Lord shall go forth from, the, from Jerusalem. Why wait in Jerusalem? Because that's the starting point from which the word of the Lord will go. Friends, God, through the promise of the Spirit, was going to bring about His kingdom and apply it into the hearts of those who trust themselves to God. How does this command to wait, how does this command apply to us? In one way, it no longer applies to us. In one way, it no longer applies to us because this command has been fulfilled. In chapter 2, the Spirit has been poured out in Jerusalem. This act is no longer repeatable. It is just as unrepeatable as the incarnation of Christ. So that in chapter 2, when Peter preaches the gospel and tells people to respond to the gospel, in verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. After Pentecost, there's no more command to wait for the Spirit but an assurance that the Spirit will be given every time people respond to the gospel. But if, even if Pentecost is no longer repeatable, there are a few things we can learn from this command. And what we can learn is that we cannot bring about His kingdom on our own. We need His Spirit. We need His power. We must depend on His Spirit and this is dependence continues to be displayed in our devotion to prayer. That's why prayer is such a big deal in the life of the church. When the Holy Spirit has been given to the church, why would we look elsewhere for our effectiveness and power? When the Spirit has been given to the church, why would we put our confidence in methods and strategies and human wisdom? Oh, friends, that's why now that the Spirit has been given to the church, we have a great resource. We have a great place to go to. Go to the Spirit and ask Him to fill us so that he, we will increase in our effectiveness to proclaim the gospel. 
this is a wait, a, a command to wait. But then they'll promise to restore. When the disciples think of and hear the words of Jesus about the Spirit, they hear restoration. And that's right, because through the prophets of the Old Testament, when God promised that He will pour out His Spirit, that was time of restoration. So the prophets get excited. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom back to Israel? Now, some people think that was a wrong question. Even Calvin himself said there's as many, um, as many wrong assumptions in that question as words. But I think Calvin got it, got it wrong on this one. This is not necessarily a wrong question. The prophets prophesied that when the Spirit will come, it's a sign that God will restore His kingdom to His people. So the disciples ask, is it going to be happening now? And Jesus, He responds to them by telling them it's not about a when issue. It's about a how issue. It's not about when God will restore the kingdom. It's about how He will do it. And the answer is in verse 8. Here's how He will do it. When you receive power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, this is not a command. This is a promise. This is a promise of how God will restore his kingdom to his people. When the Spirit comes, you will receive power, the power of the kingdom. And it's not for yourselves. It's so that you may go out and proclaim it. Isaiah makes very clear that God had intended Israel to be a witness from the very beginning. There are verses and verses. I'll just read one of them in Isaiah 43, passage read earlier in the, in, the, in the service. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Israel has seen God's wonder from the beginning. They've seen the exodus. They've seen the plagues. They've seen the crossing of the Red Sea. They've seen everything God has done through the Old Testament to bring God's people out to himself. And God wanted his people to be witnesses. Now, if you are to be an eyewitness of an event, what do you need to be and do? What do you need to have? Eyes to see and ears to listen. Right? You can't be an eyewitness if you're blind. Or you can't proclaim something that you have heard if you're deaf. Right? Now listen how God describes the people of, Isaiah, of, of Israel in the book of Isaiah. And again, this is the passage read earlier by Jeff to us. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as a servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Do you know, do you realize what God is doing here? He's saying Israel has lost its ability to witness because they have become deaf and blind to the things of God. No wonder that when Jesus comes, he starts his ministry, and what does he do? He opens the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. It's a symbol of what Jesus' ministry will do spiritually to his people. 
And now that Christ has accomplished his redemption, now that he has opened their eyes and ears, now he restores them to their vocation of being witnesses. Witness to what God has done, not just in Exodus. Witness to what God has done now in Christ. That's why Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses, my witnesses to what I have done. But unlike Old Testament Israel, now these disciples will have the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the kingdom will actually be now manifested through the Holy Spirit so that these disciples will indeed be able to testify. Notice the witness will impact um, a few places, Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. People think this is talking about four different regions. It's not. Judea and Samaria are linked together. Did you notice there's an and in between them? Why is that and there? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why is there an and between Judea and Samaria? Because there was a time in Israel's history when these two places were one. During David's reign, these places were one. But after Solomon's death, these places separated, and they separate so much that when Jesus comes and speaks to a Samaritan woman at the well, they had another mountain and another place of worship, and the whole issue was, which is a true place of worship? When Jesus restores their vocation to be a witness, starts in Jerusalem, but then he moves out to all Judea and Samaria as one place. God is restoring his people. But it won't stop with Judea and Samaria. It will go to the ends of the earth so that now the, the new people that God is building for himself is no longer just national Israel. It is members of an international community so that the church, the members of the church of Jesus Christ is no longer an issue of nationalistic ties. Oh, dear friends, the restoration of the kingdom of God is going to Israel in just a few days when the Spirit returns. But it goes to Israel in unexpected ways. It goes to Israel because it is a place from which that kingdom will start to be promoted. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Israel because it is, God is restoring his people in, in, in Judea and all Samaria. But then through them, he goes to the ends of the earth. And this brings up the issue, how does a kingdom expand? The kingdom of God expands through the Spirit of God as the people of God proclaim his word. No kingdom in this earth, in our history, has ever been promoted through words. It's always promoted through arms, through force, through economic development, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom we know of which expands and grows through speaking. And not just any speaking, speaking about Christ. And we should not be surprised. That's how God created the earth in the first place. Why would we be surprised that the kingdom of God would somehow grow through human effort? 
Not that human effort is not engaging that, but the kingdom of God goes as his word is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. And that's why, dear friends, the command, you are my witnesses, is not just a command, it's a promise. That when the Spirit has come, and it has come, the people of God, it's inevitable, the people of God this time will be witnesses and they will not fail. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers them for witness. Friends, this restoration of the kingdom of God through the giving of the Spirit and by a renewal of the initial vocation to be witnesses has some applications as we think about the expansion of the kingdom. Friend, if you're a Christian, have you ever considered that the Spirit's work is actually to set up the reign of God in our hearts? The Spirit's job is to, say, to, re- to set up the reign of God in our hearts because the kingdom of God is a spiritual reign. But when His reign is set in our hearts, the Spirit brings power, the power of the kingdom to speak about Christ. So, friend, the kingdom of God expands by witnessing, by speaking about Christ. I pray that as we realize as a church that our main work, our main mission is to equip you, the members of this congregation, to speak the word of Christ. We might fail to, to do a whole lot of other projects in this nation. We might fail to do a whole lot of other activities in the city. But if we fail to equip you to speak the word of Christ, we have failed. That's why as we begin the book of Acts, I want to look at this as a promise, not just as a command. You've heard the commands. It's a promise. When the Holy Spirit is among us, He will empower us to witness. And our ministry as a church should be to see that work continue to grow. And as the word of Christ spreads out, from our mouths, not just from mine, not just from this pulpit, but as you go from this place, as the word of Christ is actually uttered by your lips, God might actually use his spirit, accompany those words through the power of his spirit, and bring life to those who receive it. That is why we exist as a church. That's why our mission statement as a church is Park Hills Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. That's our mission. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we praise you because in Christ you accomplish what you have planned to do. We praise you because through Christ and the promise of his spirit, the promise which you have given us as well, we have in our disposal, to our disposal, the Spirit who empowers us to speak. Speak through us, O Lord. Empower us to be witnesses. Open our eyes, open our ears, and open our mouths so that our witnessing might be with boldness. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Just stand up one more time and sing this with us.